This is Asham. He said the American people should have a voice in the selection of their next Supreme Court justice. Therefore, this vacancy should not be filled until we have a new president. Yeah, but that was then. This is now, Amy Klobuchar. Wake up. Come on. Get with it, man. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Brandcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., also in Red Bluff and Redding, California, on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. In Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950 KTNF. We stream as well on the internets, coast to coast and around the globe every day on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Deprogrammed Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Hey, Desi Doyen. Hey. This just in from Washington Post at more than 62,000. The number of new U.S. coronavirus cases on Thursday reached the highest daily level since late July. Oh, my gosh. We are going in the wrong direction. Wow. Uh, but anyway, other than that, <clears throat> everything is great. <laughs> We've uh, Coming up, Slate's Mark Joseph Stern will be here to report on those illegitimate sham hearings you heard Amy Klobuchar speaking about at the uh, top of the show here in the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee as they wrap up this week as uh, Republicans move full speed ahead to ram Amy Coney Barrett onto their already stolen U.S. Supreme Court. See? Told you things are going well. Yeah. Well, at least we'll get to talk to Mark Joseph Stern about it, which is always a highlight, even though he usually talks about really horrible things. And today will be no exception, <laughs> I expect. Uh, yeah. Meanwhile, American voters across the country, there's some good news, right? Well, they are lining up to voice their opinion about all of our ongoing shams right now. And we turn yet again to Sham Central to see how that's going. Des, any idea where Sham Central might be? <laughs> I hesitate <clears throat> to guess. Writing over at his election modeling and forecasting blog today, Nate Silver writes, For all the turmoil in, this, in the uh, country this year, our presidential election forecast has been remarkably stable, he says, dating back to June 1, the first date that we ran the forecast, only two states since then have flipped between Donald Trump and Joe Biden at any point. That would be North Carolina 
and Ohio, both of which uh, moved from slightly favoring Trump to now slightly favoring Biden. But that was it until Wednesday when they were joined by a third state, one that we have reported on on this show just once or twice over the years regarding their election system. That would be the great state of Georgia, where for the first time all year, Joe Biden is now the ever so slight favorite to win in the 538 forecast. With the addition of a new Quinnipiac University poll showing him seven percentage points ahead there, which, as Silver also notes later in the piece, is a much bigger lead in that poll than the uh, consensus average margin of the other polls in the state right now. But with that uh, new Quinnipiac poll, Biden's chances in Georgia, he says, have risen from 46 percent to 51 percent of winning that state. Uh, He notes they have since fallen to an even 50-50 since he began writing the article. Hmm. But uh, he adds, A, that's really uh, not really that big of a change in the state. And B, the race is a toss-up. Trump could easily reemerge as the nominal favorite by the time you are reading this. Silver writes, Uh, suffice to say, it is very, very, very close in the state of Georgia. Very close. And every vote will be important in that state, not just because of the presidential race, as Silver goes on to discuss as well in his article headlined, Will Georgia Turn Blue? Georgia could be of even greater importance in the U.S. Senate, where it actually has two races, a standard Senate election between the Republican incumbent David Perdue and the Democrat John Ossoff. And a special election where the appointed Republican incumbent, Kelly Loeffler, is defending her seat against challengers from both parties in a uh, jungle style top two primary where if no one gets more than 50 percent, the top two candidates from any party will go on to a runoff. But the winner, if there is no uh, tie or nobody gets uh, more than 50 percent, that person then will be the Senate. Correct. Except there is about a dozen people in this race. So none of them are likely to get more than 50 percent. So it's likely headed to a runoff. Correct. He says the uh, the regular uh, Senate election, Purdue Ossoff race, could potentially require a runoff itself if the libertarian candidate there gets enough votes. And the uh, special election, he says, is very likely to require a runoff. Uh, Recent developments, he says, however, in that special election have been favorable to Democrats. One Democrat, Raphael Warnock, the pastor at Ebenezer Baptist Church, has consolidated the large majority of the Democratic vote following endorsements from Barack Obama and other prominent Democrats. There's a guy named Lieberman running in that race Isn't in Georgia. Isn't he the son of Joe Lieberman, the yes, infamous former Democratic yes, Senator yes, Joe Lieberman? Yes, he is. Mr. Spoiler of everything progressive. Yes, yeah, that's him. That's wow. the one. So carrying He's, on like good old dad, yeah, I guess. Yeah, and they've been trying to get him to drop out, but he won't. Nonetheless, it looks like Warnock has uh, been able to consolidate uh, the majority, at least, of the Democrats. Silver says that he is very likely now to advance to the runoff based on recent polls. And uh, for the second runoff slot in that special election, uh, there's a bitter feud between Loeffler and another Republican there, Congressman Doug Collins, 
who uh, they've been trying to outcompete each other, apparently, by bragging about how, quote, conservative they are <laughs> and how much they support Trump which is potentially toxic messaging in an increasingly purple state where Trump is not that popular. So uh, this fight, as it moves forward between those two, uh, may not help either of them in a potential runoff situation. In the uh, regular Georgia Senate race, the incumbent uh, Republican Purdue has just over a two-point advantage in the Real Clear Politics polling average over Ossoff. And they one in four chance that the race will require a runoff as well, according to uh, Silver. So that could mean there could be two uncalled Senate races, Senate seats, until the runoff is held in Georgia on January 5. So if you were planning on going anywhere after November 3rd, Des, <laughs> now might be a good time to cancel those plans. <sighs> It never ends. It really when, never ends. And at that point, uh, Georgians will get to start lining up all over again for hours and hours to vote. That is, if they get done voting this time, otherwise they might as well just stay in line until January. <laughs> there are uh, no, uh, certainly no sure things, writes Silver, uh, for Democrats in Georgia. But the fact that a formerly red state has become perhaps the most competitive battleground in the country is a bad sign for Republicans, he says. Which, of course, brings us to those lines in Georgia where people who did not request a mail-in ballot or didn't get one or couldn't wait for it, uh, they are now waiting hours, yes, to cast their votes on unverifiable touchscreen voting systems at the polls during early voting. But maybe, just maybe, that's about to get better. We will see. As the Atlanta Journal-Constitution reports today, voting had slowed to a crawl across Georgia this week, in large part because of check-in computer systems that could not handle the load of record turnout at early voting locations. Sound familiar? Those check-in computers would be the electronic poll books that we have been warning about for so long on this show, which also failed out here in Los Angeles County during the primaries earlier this year, the Super Tuesday primaries in March. We now use a similar touchscreen ballot marking device to vote at the polls in the uh, most populous county in the nation, which requires a check-in electronic poll book that voters must use to set up their ballots at voting centers where voters from any precinct can vote at any voting center they like. Sounds convenient. But because of that, and yes, I am no fan of voting centers either for a number of reasons, this being one of them, because of that, um, they have to use these electronic poll books that access the Internet essentially to make sure that the voter has not already voted elsewhere since you can go and vote at any polling place. The problem with Georgia's new crappy $100-plus-million-dollar system created a bottleneck as voters reached the front of the line, finally, after standing in line for hours. And when they got there, poll workers had to deal with these sluggish laptop computers to verify each voter. Some early voting sites reported checking in uh, just 10 voters per hour at each computer. So do the math on that and compare it to how long it takes you to go in when you got a paper poll book and uh, tell them your name and where you live and sign the poll book and you're done, you're off and voting. 
Not with these computers. The computer problem shows why poll workers struggled to clear long lines, says the uh, Atlanta Journal-Constitution. They could only move as quickly as the technology would let them while managing some 243,000 voters in the first two days of Georgia's three-week period of early voting. And yes, if it took voters like 10 minutes uh, or they could only process 10 voters per hour, again, do the math. Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, who apparently didn't bother to do the math or can't do math or doesn't care about the math. Bingo. He initially attributed the lines to high turnout. He said uh, that's part of and, and in fact, it is part of the reason for the delays, but it became clear the paper says from interviews with poll workers, election officials and voters this week that technical difficulties with those check in computers contributed to the severe waits. Raffensperger said Wednesday he's now working with the state's election software company to improve speeds and process voters more quickly. Nice of him to get around to that. It's only been a couple days, you know. Uh, and he's only had a year to try to make sure that there was unlimited bandwidth to make sure this wouldn't happen. I mean, how stupid do you have to be to not know that there was going to be huge crowds at the polls this year? Later in the day, on Wednesday, Raffensperger's office said the state's election software vendor had increased bandwidth, so they could have just done this from the jump. Wow. Uh, and it resulted in immediate improvements reported by many counties. Wait times fell from over three hours to about one hour on Wednesday afternoon at several early voting sites in Metro Atlanta. What did Raffensperger know and when did he know it about the bandwidth issue? Well, I, yeah, good question. Uh, nonetheless, uh, now, I guess, because he knows it, we it's A, good news, but B, it's also troubling news because it illustrates just how easily these systems can be gamed if someone decides to, you know, jam the bandwidth by any number of means. It's a good thing that the state has three weeks of early voting at this point. They're going to need it. County election officials said the problems uh, need to be fixed quickly before voting uh, turnout, rise, uh, turnout rates turn even higher as Election Day approaches. Cynthia Willingham, the uh, election supervisor in Rockdale County, said our voters are going to come in numbers. So across Georgia, we don't want to have eight-hour lines. We need the system to work as it should. Cynics, of course but not me, maybe Desi Doyen, would tell Cynthia that this is how it's supposed to work. By design. But, yeah. Checking in voters should take about a minute, not four or five minutes, said Fulton County Election Director Richard Barron. If there isn't a resolution before week three, it is going to be really bad, Barron said. Prepare for it to be bad. By the way, when uh, Marilyn Marks was on this show uh, earlier, a week or so ago, something like that. <laughs> I don't know. Lost track of time. Uh, she's been, of course. Uh, that was uh, Monday, by the way. Okay. Yeah. This week? This Monday? Yes. Okay. She said that she's been, of course, suing to get rid of these entire uh, terrible touchscreen systems and the electronic poll books. She got a, uh, a ruling from the federal court that said they have to have paper backups just in case the systems fail. Those don't appear, uh, appear to be being used. But she said on the show that in um, when there is a wait time that is longer than 30 minutes, 
election officials have the right to give out hand-marked paper ballots to voters. However, I don't know that that is possible at voting centers. It may be the case on Election Day where you have to vote at a precinct and not a voting center. But at a voting center, when you have these kind of uh, these kind of problems uh, in order to give handmarked paper ballots out, you'd have to have every ballot style in the every legislative district. Yeah, every in the county. county. Yeah. Well, in the county, because you right. have to vote in within your own county. Anyway, uh, Raffensperger said the turnout was about 35 percent higher than the start of early voting in 2016 and that that taxed election computers like never before in Georgia elections. Again, who could have foreseen it? He says it's just a lot of people running down the same road right now at a Capitol press conference. Uh, But the problem occurred on uh, ENET, a computer system that maintains the voter registration and absentee ballot information for Georgia's 7.5 million registered voters. The online system is used by election workers to... um, Look up voters' registration information, check them in at the early voting, and also apparently when scanning absentee ballots as they arrive at uh, county elections office. But the ENET system was unable to efficiently process so many requests at once, causing delays, Raffensperger said. Voters felt the consequences of those tech troubles standing outside crowding pla- crowded polling places for as long as 12 hours. 12 hours to vote in some places before they reach the front of the line. Now, I've seen a lot of Democrats celebrating. Look at the long lines. Look how happy everybody is to get out and vote, how anxious they are, how excited. Well, yeah, uh, but be careful what you wish for, because a lot of those lines, a lot of those crowds that you're seeing are because we have such stupid voting systems in many places And when a lot of these folks in the lines finally got to the front of them and they saw empty touchscreen ballot marking devices sitting there not being used, they were none too happy. And it was because of the holdup at the check-in computers. And again, that is precisely what we saw out here in Los Angeles County on primary day back in March on our new touchscreen ballot marking devices which also used those electronic poll uh, poll book check-in computers that also did not have enough bandwidth to access the voter registration databases quickly enough. None of this occurs with hand-marked paper ballot systems with precinct-based voting as opposed to voting center uh, centers. Uh, one uh, voter said he waited 15 minutes to be checked in as the thing was just spinning and spinning and uh, he saw some people leaving the line without Mm. voting at all. Now, the good news is that that network system is used only in Georgia during early voting to uh, instantly update records. (laughs) I put a word I put quotes around the word instantly there so that voters can only cast one ballot so they can't you know, go to another voting site in the county and vote. On Election Day, however, voter information will supposedly be preloaded onto these check-in computers that are then kept offline. So voters can only vote at their neighborhood polling place on November 3. So in theory, that should not be a problem on Election Day. In theory. But it is Georgia after all. And uh, on Election Day, hopefully all they'll have to worry about 
is whether those unverifiable touchscreen voting systems actually record their votes as cast uh, after whatever lines are caused by not enough of those machines deployed on Election Day. Actually, that's not all they will have to worry about eh, or the rest of the nation will have to worry about on Election Day. The FBI and the Department of Homeland Security's Cybersecurity Agency have been issuing a series of advisories in recent weeks, which have not been getting much coverage, aimed at warning voters about problems that could surface on Election Day, as well as steps that Americans can take to try to counter foreign interference. Last Friday, in a report that I am only seeing today, thanks to, of all places, Fox News, which reported on it today, Hackers, possibly nation state actors, have penetrated U.S. government networks and accessed election systems. The FBI and the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA, said in a joint alert that was issued late last week. In some cases, there was unauthorized access to election support systems. CISA said before noting, however, CISA has no evidence to date that integrity of elections has been compromised. Feel better? The agency, which is part of the Department of Homeland Security, explained it does not appear that these targets are being selected because of their proximity to elections information. CISA did not intimate that election system data could be compromised. I'm sorry, did intimate. That's important. CISA did intimate that election system data could be compromised, noting there are steps that election officials they're supporting IT staff and vendors can take to help defend against the malicious cyber activity. The alert did not state explicitly who the bad actors were, only referring to them as advanced Advanced Persistent Threat Actors, or APT Actors. That is a term that is often used to describe state-sponsored hacking groups. Last month, in September, Microsoft said they had detected Russian, Chinese, and Iranian actors targeting the 2020 election. They said at the time that the activity we are announcing today makes clear that foreign activity groups have stepped up their efforts targeting the 2020 election, as has been anticipated and is consistent with what the U.S. government and others have reported. So uh, I don't have much more on that today for now, but I wanted wanted you to know about it. Uh, I know I wish I had something that could make you feel better about it, but I don't. But hey, the hearings for Donald Trump's third Supreme Court nominee concluded today in the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee. That'll help make you feel better, <laughs> right? Well, uh, Mark Joseph Stern is here next. He always makes me feel better just by being here. So that's straight ahead. A quick break, and we're back with how Amy Coney Barrett did this week in her attempt to join the Republicans' already stolen U.S. Supreme Court and how the Democrats did in response. I'm sure that will make everybody feel better, right? I'm Brad. Stay tuned. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. <laughs> Thank you. 
Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. The Republican-led U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee on Thursday scheduled an October 22 vote. That would be next Thursday to advance right-wing appellate judge Amy Coney Barrett's nomination to the Supreme Court to the full U.S. Senate for confirmation over Democratic objections. I move to indefinitely postpone the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett. No, we're not. To be an Associate Justice of the United States Supreme Court. I believe that this rush sham process is a disservice to our committee. Yes, Mr. Chairman, I just wanted to join in with uh, Senator Blumenthal here. This is a sham, and I just heard you talk about precedent. The closest precedent, which what matters to me, is what all of you said. And what you said, Mr. Chairman, and what Senator McConnell said are where he set the precedent. He said the American people should have a voice in the selection of their next Supreme Court justice. Therefore, when he was looking back at the Merrick Garland time, this vacancy should not be filled until we have a new president. And the final word is why we are not working right now on a COVID relief package in the middle of a pandemic uh, is the final pits about this whole process, because that's what we should be doing. That's what the American people want. 74% of them say we should be doing that instead of working on this. That polite, subdued effort by Democrats to postpone the vote on Barrett was surprise voted down by the Republican majority on the committee with hypocrite King Lindsey Graham, uh, who was the one to announce back in 2016 that it would be a new rule in the U.S. Senate that no Supreme Court nomination would ever go through during a uh, presidential election year. Uh, That was a rule that lasted zero presidential elections in a row after they used it to steal the court from Democrats back in 2016. But the last day of the four-day confirmation hearing for President Trump's third nominee to the highest court in the land proceeded with complaints from Democrats that Barrett sidestepped questions about presidential powers, abortion, voting rights, Obamacare, and pretty much everything else. Trump has asked the Senate, controlled by his fellow Republicans, to confirm Barrett before the November 3 U.S. election day, in which he said he expects the courts to decide the election's outcome. Democratic Senator Dick Durbin said that Barrett, unlike many prior nominees, avoided answering many questions she should have tackled, including whether a president can delay an election and queries related to transitions of power. Durbin asked, what was the purpose of this hearing if we've reached the point now where we really don't know what she thinks about any issues? He said, I'd be afraid to ask her about the presence of gravity on Earth because she may decline to answer. After several days of answering or not answering questions from senators, Barrett had the day off as the committee heard from outside experts on her qualifications to serve as a Supreme Court justice on Thursday. Barrett's confirmation to the Lifetime Post, a virtual certainty it now seems, given that Republicans hold a 53-47 Senate majority, would shift the Republicans' already stolen court even farther to the right with a 6-3 majority at the Supreme Court. On Wednesday, Senator Kamala Harris, Democratic presidential uh, vice presidential uh, uh, candidate to Joe Biden, said that the confirmation proceedings, quote, lack legitimacy 
because Americans want the winner of the presidential election to decide who fills the court's vacancy created by the death of liberal justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Harris urged the Senate to take up COVID-19 pandemic relief legislation instead of the confirmation. But of course, the Senate is not actually meeting at all other than for these sham confirmation hearings. The rest of the Senate is off due to election campaigns and because of the covid crisis. If confirmed, in addition to being seated in time to hear any concerns about the ongoing election in which more than 15 million Americans have already cast their votes for or against the man who nominated her to her new lifetime job, Barrett would be seated on the Supreme Court in time to participate in a case on November 10, in which Trump and Republican-led states are seeking to invalidate the entirety of the Affordable Care Act, the 2010 law known as Obamacare, which has allowed some 30 million Americans access to health care and otherwise protects some 130 million Americans who have pre-existing conditions. About two weeks ago, we spoke on this program with our favorite Supreme Court reporter. That would be Mark Joseph Stern. It was after Barrett's nomination had been announced, but before her confirmation hearings to get an idea about his concerns and what we might expect from the Supreme Court once Amy Coney Barrett is seated on it with a six to three hard right majority in place on the court. Here's what Mark told us going to overturn Roe v. Wade. She is going to allow states to ban abortion and even to let Congress ban abortion nationwide so that no state can give people access to the procedure. She is against almost any kind of gun control law. She does not believe in the right to vote. She does not support LGBTQ equality. She rejects the idea of same-sex marriage. She is going to strip our federal laws of all environmental and labor regulations that have basically any effect. She is going to abolish the federal government's ability to regulate carbon emissions, mercury, lead, to protect workers from labor exploitation. She is going to remake this entire country's law in a way that might satisfy a robber baron of the 1800s, but will make everyone else feel rightly like they are living in the Dark Ages. Joining us now to apologize for those outrageous pre-confirmation hearing assessments of Supreme Court nominee Amy Coney Barrett is Mark Joseph Stern, who covers the law, the court system, the U.S. Supreme Court election law, and uh, much, much more for Slate.com. Uh, oh, welcome back to the broadcast, Mr. Stern. Thank you. Yes, well, given how honest <laughs> and forthcoming yeah. Barrett was this week, I must apologize because <laughs> we now know she'll do none of that, right? She'll be such a candid, open-minded jurist <laughs> well, that who could oppose her? Well, that's what I wanted to have you back to find out. Did you hear anything over this past week of, of hearings for Barrett that has helped to assuage any of those concerns that you had before the hearings or... Anything that might otherwise change those concerns in any way? No, of course I didn't. <laughs> it was a terrible week. It was one of the worst on record. I mean, let's be clear. Uh, Amy Coney Barrett has established a new rule for Supreme Court confirmations. 
um, which is that the nominee doesn't just have to be kind of evasive or squirrely. The nominee can literally say nothing of substance uh-huh. and simply announce a rule at the outset that she won't say anything of substance and then just swat down questions that try to get her to say anything meaningful. Um, she did not say anything that matters, but we already knew how she felt about the law and all of the issues that we discussed last time. And certainly nothing she said this week made me feel that she is any more progressive on any of those issues. So uh, Dick Durbin's question, uh, what was the purpose of this hearing, uh, if we've reached the point now where we really don't know what she thinks about any issue, that, that seems like it picks up on your thoughts. It seems like a good one. If they are no longer going to answer any questions, even simple ones about the rule of law, like this one from uh, this was from Amy uh, Klobuchar, Klobuchar on uh, day two, I believe. Judge Barrett, under federal law, is it illegal to intimidate voters at the polls? Senator Klobuchar, I can't characterize the facts in a hypothetical situation, and I can't apply the law to a hypothetical set of facts like okay, that. Okay, well, I'll make, I'll make it easier. 18 U.S.C. 594 outlaws anyone who intimidates, threatens, coerces, or attempts to intimidate, threaten, or coerce any other person for the purpose of interfering with the right of such other person to vote. So if if she can't even or won't even answer questions like that, if nominees to the highest court in the land won't answer those types of questions, and that was not about her opinion, it was just, is it illegal to intimidate people at the polls? What is the point anymore of the constitutional advice and, and consent clause for such jurors, Mark? Uh, you got me. I, I don't understand why we all had to go through this entire experience. It was it was a psychic wound. It was demeaning <laughs> to all of us. Um, she won't even say whether this federal law exists, whether it is real. Will she acknowledge that gravity exists? And I also don't see where she draws the line because she said that racism is bad. But if she can admit that racism is bad, shouldn't she be able to admit that anti-LGBTQ discrimination is bad? How about sexism? How about xenophobia? You know, she, she drew these imaginary lines, uh, and they allowed her to kind of run away from the hearing without saying a single thing that gives us any insight. I don't think we need these hearings anymore if this is how it's going to go. We all acknowledge the reality. When Republicans control the Senate, only Republican presidents can confirm justices. So that's the rule, and Democrats should play by it. And if they control the Senate and they control the presidency, why bother with hearings? Submit the name, take a vote, and let the rest of us move on with our lives. And, you know, Lindsey Graham had said, I think, even before uh, either Lindsey Graham or Mitch McConnell, or probably both, even before uh, uh, Trump had actually named Barrett, that they were going to approve his selection, whoever it was. So, I mean, it really does beg the question of what is the point of these hearings. Let me start, uh, Mark, though, by noting that I was not able to watch the hearings gavel to gavel as I usually try to, partly out of my own personal protest, because I do share the very politely stated opinions there of, of Klobuchar and Blumenthal that this thing is an illegitimate sham, but also because I've been trying to cover the most critical election in the history of our nation, which just happens to be going on, I know it's a coincidence, at the very same time. So with that caveat, Mark, um, from what I did see, and I may be wrong here, and I'm not an attorney or a constitutional expert, so feel free to uh, disagree with me here, Setting aside the politics, 
from what I did see, Amy Coney Barrett actually seems to me to be a legal lightweight. Am I wrong on that? And like I said, feel free to let me know that I am. But from what I saw, I was not impressed whether I agreed with her opinions or not. So let me say two things. First, it is very difficult to answer that question because she said almost nothing about the law during all of those things. She said some very superficial stuff about originalism and textualism. We've all heard it a million times before the song and dance about how it constrains judges, they don't impose their policy preferences, they just hold a seance with James Madison and do whatever he tells them to <laughs> on the Ouija board or whatever. But, you know, it's really hard for me to analyze her legal wits when she won't even talk about the law or, you know, with Klobuchar, admit that it exists. Number two, uh, she has a really remarkable paucity of experience. Uh -huh. um, she has basically been uh, a clerk, briefly a lawyer, and then a law professor until she was a judge. She's been a judge for three years now on a federal appeals court. Um, if you look at pretty much any state Supreme Court and look at the jurists on those courts, mm -hmm. they have way more experience than Amy Coney Barrett. They have years of experience practicing law, often a lot of experience on the lower courts or litigating cases before courts, which Barrett barely did. They understand the legal system, the realities of the legal system, how it affects individuals, not just these high-flying abstractions about, you know, who gets to decide exactly what Thomas Jefferson meant when he helped, you know, craft the First Amendment. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't think that she is a particularly uh, remarkable legal scholar. I don't think that she's necessarily being picked on the merits of her own scholarship. I don't know if lightweight is the word I would use, but I was unimpressed, I'll tell you that much. Uh, her uh, hero, for whom she once clerked, Justice Scalia, uh, as I pointed out earlier this week, in a bit of a rant, uh, I, I think he was a liar and a hypocrite and not the so-called constitutional originalist or textualist or whatever he wanted to call himself when it was politically convenient. But I would not call him a lightweight. She, on the other hand... You know, she's. if you have trouble answering uh, what, what seem to be simple questions of law, like is it uh, unlawful to intimidate people at the polls, that one seems like a, a, a softball. I mean, was it really because, I mean, she came across to me like she didn't know as opposed to not wanting to answer those questions. Am I... Am I, am I missing it? Is that just a question she didn't want to answer? Or does she not understand that, yes, it is illegal, and that's what Klobuchar was asking. Is well, it I, illegal? I think you might be right. And I noticed this as well when one of the Democratic senators asked her a question about this very well-known precedent called Smiley that's about redistricting and basically whether governors can veto redistricting maps passed by the legislature crucial decision, right, forms, forms the framework for a lot of our redistricting laws today in all 50 states. And yet Barrett said that she wasn't familiar with it. She said that she, she didn't really know that ruling or what it was all about. And I thought, could that possibly be true that a sitting federal appeals court judge of three years experience doesn't know one of the foundational uh, precedents mm -hmm. from, from decades and decades ago that helps to govern, you know, really important voting rights stuff today. Who gets to draw the maps? Who gets to gerrymander the districts? Um, that suggests to me that maybe she really isn't so well-read on the law. Maybe her brilliance 
has been overstated by the right-wing media mm-hmm. machine that's promoting her confirmation here. And maybe she isn't, say, a female Scalia, as she's been mm-hmm. sold as, because I agree, Scalia was a very smart guy. He was quite intelligent and mm-hmm. had a very impressive record. I've seen no such thing from Barrett, and even looking over her academic and scholarly writings, they don't seem to be the work of a luminary. She might be fairly smart, but compared to a lot of other jurists who might have been nominated to this position, uh, I don't know if she really holds a candle. Which actually puts her in a great position for the right-wingers who helped her get there, uh, as uh, Sheldon Whitehouse pointed out. We'll get to that in a little bit after, after a break here, but uh, you know, I don't, I don't know that they want someone who is that smart, I, I, <laughs> frankly. But we'll get to that. Uh, Barrett uh, said that the landmark uh, 1973 Roe v. Wade ruling that legalized abortion nationwide was not a, quote, super precedent that could uh, not be overturned. Now, I admit that's the first time I've heard the phrase super precedent. Is that a thing or have we just now made that idea up as well after years of uh, these right-wing justices claiming they believed in starry decisis. They believed in respecting existing precedent. But nobody asked them, I guess, about super precedent or whatever that is. What's up with that, Mark? Yeah. <laughs> um, so super precedent is not a real thing. There is no constitutional distinction between precedents and super precedents. Um, this seems to be a concept that Amy Coney Barrett helped to make up um, this idea that there are certain cases that the courts would never revisit and overturn, um, which seems like a pretty foolish thing for a future judge to say because it really leads to the question, well, what are the super precedents and <laughs> yeah. how come you aren't including Roe v. Wade as one of them? How come you aren't including same-sex marriage as one of them? How come, you know, why <laughs> did you decide that these few cases are sacrosanct and the rest of them can be placed on the chopping block. I didn't really get it. I don't think Democratic senators fully wrapped their heads around it. And, and to be fair to them, it's not clear there's much to wrap your head around here, right? This is just a sort of fabricated idea um, that she's going to use to say, well, I won't overturn Brown versus Board of Education because that's super precedent. But Roe v. Wade, that's just regular old precedent. So we can absolutely get rid of that. So just to be clear, have you ever heard is that a have you ever heard that phrase before super precedent? The first time I heard it was when this whole idea came up during Justice Gorsuch's confirmation hearings as well. Neil Gorsuch had participated in some kind of book that raised this concept briefly and he got peppered with the same questions and gave similarly evasive answers. So I guess this is a concept that solely emerges in the con- in the in the context of Supreme Court confirmation hearings. Uh, I guess so. Uh, and at some point it'll be, well, I believe in precedent, super precedent, but not super duper precedent. <laughs> that would be Mark Joseph Stern. Uh, can you sit tight for a second? I got to take a quick break. I want to come back and ask you about the Democrats for their part, how they did and what they might have done better, if anything. Uh, speaking with Mark Joseph Stern of Slate.com, you're listening to the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial.
Five major corporations now control more than 80 percent of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100 percent independent, 100 percent listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. We are speaking with the great Mark Joseph Stern, who covers the courts and the U.S. Supreme Court and everything else for Slate.com. As the uh, week of hearings in the uh, Amy Coney Barrett Supreme Court confirmation hearings wraps up, Mark, after day one, you and our friend Dahlia Lithwick over there at Slate had a conversation in which you noted that you uh, turned on C-SPAN on, I guess it was Monday, hoping for fireworks from the Democrats, but was, uh, to put it mildly, let down by their performance and their focus that day on the Affordable Care Act, which is... uh, coming before the court 10 days after Election Day. And uh, you were disappointed to see that instead of the outrage in these uh, in these entire proceedings and that the Democratic concerns about the ACA only served to normalize these decidedly not normal proceedings. Did the Democrats get any better as the week progressed, as you saw it? There were a few Democrats who hit their mark. Okay, uh, Sheldon Whitehouse talking about the dark money network behind Amy Coney Barrett. Brilliant performance. I really liked it. Cory Booker, Amy Klobuchar, uh, even Kamala Harris, to some degree, did try to really nail down Barrett's views on important issues. Almost all of the rest of the senators pretty much failed. Uh, and I think they, did, they failed to meet the moment. They failed to frame these hearings as illegitimate. They failed to show viewers and the American people why they shouldn't be happening at all, why these hearings are a sham. And at the end of the day, I think these hearings absolutely helped Barrett and helped Trump, helped Republican senators. And a, a lot of that is because of how the Democrats conducted themselves. I mean, when the hearings ended, Dianne Feinstein praised Lindsey Graham for chairing them so well and gave him a big hug, which I'm sure will be seen on TVs across South Carolina in ads against Jamie Harrison supporting Lindsey Graham. Was was that before or after his COVID test? (laughs) Well, we don't know. And guess what? Neither of them was wearing a mask when they embraced. Jesus, really? Yes. She hugged him, and uh, I'm sorry, I cut you off. You started to say that you think they'll, that'll be in ads for uh, Lindsey Graham in his run against uh, Jamie Harrison down there. I'm South sure Florida. it will. I'm sure that, you know, it's a very close race, right? I'm sure that Lindsey Graham will want to tell South Carolina independents who have been breaking against him that, in fact, he's such a moderate and civil guy, such a, such a collegial senator, that he's willing to work across the aisle and, mm. you know, hug the, the ranking member uh, of his committee. Mm. Diane Feinstein also said, this has been one of the best set of hearings I've participated in. Thank you so much for your leadership. Really? I expect to hear that soundbite on the radio in South Carolina. As Good well. Lord. What is wrong with her? Can she be removed uh, if, if the Republic, uh, well, whether the uh, Democrats take back the majority or not, can she be removed from that post in the next Congress? Yes. 
can be removed. I believe Democrats have tools at their disposal to at least remove her as a leader of that committee. Um, but, you know, she can't be recalled. She's got four more years in her term, and uh, I'm sure that she will try to remain in that post because she feels it's important. And somehow... She thinks she's good at it. Uh, on behalf of the state of California, I'd like to apologize to the nation for Diane Feinstein. We did try to get rid of her a year or two ago, uh, but uh, man, I, I uh, well, let me. If you were the, uh, let's say you were the Senate Majority Leader, Mark. And by the way, I'm all in favor of that idea. <laughs> um, how how should the Democrats have approached this confirmation, given that they had, you know, their options were were pretty limited. Now, a I know they shouldn't have had the ranking member hug the chairman. But other than that, um, now that the Republicans have done away with the filibuster for Supreme Court nominations, what would you have liked to have seen them do? How could they have done this any better? Right. So, of course, it's easy for me to sling arrows at these senators from you know, my own home as they're doing this work. I understand that. I want to be hum- humble about it. At the same time, I don't know that they needed to spend so much time talking about the Affordable Care Act, talking about health insurance. It is an important issue. Yes, the Supreme Court may soon take it away. But as soon as you get into the weeds of these cases, you are sort of conceding the point that these hearings are legitimate in the first place. And I saw very few Democratic senators talking about the fundamental illegitimacy of these hearings, explaining why they should not be happening, going hard at Barrett for being a a, a sort of a pawn for the Republican Party, for being willing to go along with this deranged power grab, as, you know, millions and millions of Americans have already voted in the next election. Barrett is still willing to put herself out there uh, and, you know, be elevated to this position that could, in the end, really destroy the Supreme Court's legitimacy. Instead of talking about that, we saw Democratic senators talking about, you know, severance and the dormant commerce clause and all of these questions they would ask a normal nominee. Right. She is not normal, and this was not normal. Uh, you and uh, Dahlia uh, Lithwick also discussed this. Uh, it's come up several times just as you and I have been talking. Uh, this this decades-long Coke uh, Federalist Society project to pack the federal courts and how difficult that idea was to explain in these hearings. You guys were talking on Monday, uh, I think it was after day one, but on day two... Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island did a remarkable job, I thought, in doing just that in a 30 minute breakdown of how all of these shadowy right wing dark money groups have collaborated to select judges for the Republican Party and then spend millions of dollars campaigning for those judges and then finding cases to bring before those very same judges to decide laws in their favor and then burying the Supreme Court with what he described with what uh, White House described as a flotilla of amicus briefs to basically help them uh, know how they should decide these cases for them. And they've had an extraordinary record, some 80 cases to zero in their favor, decided by a a partisan five to four vote on the Supreme Court. We had the great Lisa Graves on the show yesterday, whose work uh, shining light on that dark money was actually cited by White House during his remarks. What, if anything was the effect of what I thought was a pretty astounding uh, 30 minutes from Sheldon Whitehouse, Mark. 
Yeah, so obviously, you know, we haven't polled the people to see if, <laughs> if they liked his presentation, but my sense from talking to um, others in the media and, and some you know, voters is that they were impressed and that they followed the basic idea, even if they got a little lost in the maze, um, and that he got his point across that Amy Coney Barrett didn't just magically appear in that seat, right? Mm -hmm. She didn't just find herself nominated to the Supreme Court. She has been elevated, propped up by this massive dark money machine, uh, a network that is almost impossible to trace, and frankly, almost impossible to describe without sounding like a conspiracy theorist. <laughs> right. Because that is the point of, the, of dark money, right, that you can't trace it, that it's funneled and really laundered through all of these different channels, and you are not able to pin down who is donating the money and how it's getting where it's going. So I really thought that he nailed the basic premise here, that, that there's a shadowy network of billionaires who are pushing Barrett onto this court, and I hope that he at least convinced the American people to think a little bit harder about how Trump's judges got where they are. It's not by coincidence. And it's not only because of the Federalist Society. There's a lot of other players here. Mm -hmm. Most of them remain anonymous. You know, they, they hide behind their dark money. But they are pouring tens of millions of dollars into the effort to get people like Barrett into the federal judiciary. Literally. I, there was one, some, one single person uh, put forward $17 million, I think, in support of... Uh, I don't know if it's Gorsuch or Kavanaugh, and then uh, another $17 million, I think, for Barrett uh, from one single source that does not have to be uh, described. We don't have to know who that is. It's an extraordinary amount of money, uh, and what he uh, detailed, as Washington Post had reported, we're talking about $250 million, essentially, uh, to buy the Supreme Court and uh, the uh, people who have done so are getting billions of dollars in return on their investment. But I think that highlighting that, uh, as uh, Sheldon Whitehouse did, uh, could be helpful in the uh, months ahead. Uh, Biden and Harris, Joe Biden, uh, Kamala Harris, will not say whether they support expanding the court or not if they win the White House and the Senate. And I think that... Um, uh, White House's case there might help uh, to make the case of why it does need to be expanded. It seems fairly clear, at least to me, um, but they won't say one way or another. But I did. I don't know if you happen to see uh, Rachel Maddow on Wednesday night. Uh, Kamala Harris was on there. She was sort of asked about all of this, and she gave some pretty hard, what I heard as code speak. She wouldn't say, uh, you know, whether she'd expand the court, but she said, listen, what's really important is the U.S. Senate. And if you want to retain your rights and your right to an abortion and your right to, uh, uh, you know, your voting rights, and she went on and on and on with a list saying we've got to get a majority back in the U.S. Senate. That gave me some some hope that maybe that that's what they want to do. I guess the question I have for you, Mark, is uh, do you believe that they intend to do that? And the second part of that question, will Democrats actually have the guts to do it? Uh, um, so will Democrats do it? Too soon to tell. Um, 
I was more optimistic that they would do it at the beginning of this week than I am at the end of this week. Mm. Um, to see them treat Barrett like a normal nominee, especially Feinstein, indicates to me that the political will just isn't there. Wow. And frankly, to see so many progressive senators dodging this question rather than going out you know, on a limb and saying, I do support this and I want the party to follow me, that also makes me pretty sad to see. Um, do I, I, do I think they should? Of course I think they should. I mean, you and I have talked about this, and I think you were really at the forefront of this movement to seize back the court by whatever constitutional means uh, Democrats have at their disposal. This has to happen if Democrats want to save democracy, if they ever want to have a shot at governing this country, at passing a progressive agenda. They simply have to add seats to the Supreme Court, because otherwise the court will kneecap and hobble pretty much everything they try to pass. Um, I just don't see the Democratic Party moving fast enough in that direction for it to happen when it needs to happen, which is basically the day after mm -hmm. Democrats take power in January if Joe Biden is elected and Democrats win the Senate. There's going to be a small window of excitement and enthusiasm for court reform. It's going to close quickly. And so if Democrats don't act fast and really get their act together right now, then I don't see how it ever happens. Yeah, you know, and I will add, uh, if Democrats want to save the court, they have to do, to do this. I would add, if Democrats want to save themselves at this point, they need to do it. And if they need to, they can call it a super precedent. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Mark Joseph Stern, uh, you are awesome, as always. You can find his work at Slate.com. Uh, you can find him on the Twitters at MJS underscore DC. Always a delight speaking with you, my friend, uh, no matter how dark the topics. I look forward to doing it again uh, in the near future, sir. Always a pleasure, even in the darkest of times. Thank you, Mark. Dark times indeed. Yeah. I wish, you know, I, well, I, I wish I could come out here with delicious, delightful, wonderful news every day. But we got to go. We got to work with what we got. <laughs> well, I hate to say it, but it is what it is. It is what it is. Yeah. Well done, Mr. Trump. All right. We got to get out. Thanks to our producer, Desi Doyne, to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. We hope we didn't make it any worse. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it anytime at bradblog.com. Share it with your friends, family, and enemies. That is a free service provided to you by those of you who are kind enough to stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help keep us on your public airwaves and cheering you up every day as we do. You can drop me email if you like. I'm Brad. Uh, who am I? I'm Bradcast <laughs> at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, you will find me at The Brad Blog. That is it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.